0: Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Everyone knows about the risks of driving drunk. People could get hurt or killed. You could get arrested, incur huge legal expenses, or even lose your job. If you think drunk driving is no big deal, you couldn't be more wrong. Drive sober or get pulled over. Learn more at NHTSA.gov. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now, hello and welcome to the Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com, and joining me in the studio is nobody. Yeah, no Andy this week. He's down in New Mexico uh, making making Briar Patch. Uh, we're all we're all you know, you know doesn't need us to cheer for him. He's got plenty of people working on that show. But send him your love. Hit us up on the the Watch Facebook group and. You know, pass along your well wishes to Andy as he in, embarks on this incredible creative endeavor. On today's show, I was joined by Sean Fennessey and David Shoemaker. Uh, Shoemaker dropped by to talk about the second season of Ozark, which, if you're listening to us on a Thursday night, is out. It's out on August 31st. Obviously, a very, very special show to me. And the second season, I've watched one episode so far, uh, is definitely an extension of the first season, both in terms of the narrative, but in terms of the quality of the show as well. Uh, Sean came by to talk a little bit about an idea I had for superhero movies based on some of the news coming out of Todd Phillips' uh, Joker movie that he was trying to make, or he is trying to make. And then we also talked a little bit about the early reactions to some of the Oscar favorites this year, like Damien Chazelle's First Man and uh, Jason Reitman's Frontrunner and Alfonso Cuaron's uh, Roma. So cool conversation. superhero movies, awards season, and Ozark season two before I get to Sean I just wanted to say one quick thing about better Call Saul from this week uh just a, a quick note about the fourth episode one thing that I, I really noticed about how elite this show is is you can judge great shows by their bad episodes and I don't by any means think that the fourth episode was bad but it was probably a down it was kind of like we're, we're going around a bend and we're kind of taking our foot off the gas a little bit and there's gonna maybe it's a bridge to the second half of the season but even within that down episode, I thought that there was so much to take away. Obviously, it was a really violent one um, with the uh, uh, sort of shootouts that were going on. But um, I thought it was a really fascinating episode about especially Kim and Jimmy's relationship. And it was communicated with very little acting whatsoever or very, very little dialogue whatsoever. But essentially, you have Kim and Jimmy having that interaction in the bathroom. And she's asking him, Essentially, to be a better person, she's she asks him to uh, go see a therapist to deal with uh, maybe some of the grief that he theoretically should be feeling about his brother's passing, and she can tell that he's running a game on her. I think, I think she can tell. I, you know, that's not explicitly exchanged, and he feels the need. You know, he's obviously lying to her about at least in the moment about his intentions. Um, for the day about getting a job and he says he's already gotten one where in fact he had turned that job down and it was part of this kind of uh, seduction and rejection game that he had been running on these (laughs) various cell phone stores in the Albuquerque area but there's that moment where I think she recognizes that he's running a game or at least that there's something off about this guy and I don't know whether that is specifically what prompts her to go trolling for public defender work in the courts Um, but clearly she is trying to I don't know maybe be a sin eater or or atone for something that she feels is off in the universe via her relationship with Jimmy and I thought that the way that that was communicated just the writing was incredible So, great episode of Better Call Saul. We're going to keep talking about that as the weeks go by. Um, Have a great Labor Day weekend. No show on Monday. Next week, we'll have Summer TV Awards with Alison Herman and some other Ringer folks, so stay tuned for that. So let's get into my conversation with Sean Fennessy about award season and superhero movies, and then we're going to talk to David Shoemaker about Ozark Season 2. All right, I'm joined by my amigo... Sean Fennessy, what's yo up, man? brother, what's up? Big picture, Sean Fennessy, the ringer, Sean Fennessy. I have you here because I want to talk about two things. Okay. Player's choice. You want to start with superheroes? Or you want to start with awards movies?
1: I want to dispel the notion that I don't like superhero movies because I do. So let's go superheroes.
0: Okay. Um, because it's political season, it's a very politically charged time. I had an idea. Okay. And I, I I'm being flippant, but and I don't, and I don't mean to. Uh, you know, make fun of political ideology at all. I'm actually being somewhat serious here. Should we nationalize superhero movies?
1: I don't know what that means.
0: Uh, I was thinking about this with Joker and how Mm. this is another movie that seems to be getting screwed up in its infancy by uh, the inability of a corporation to decide, like, what their vision is for a piece of intellectual property. So right now, Warner Brothers, by all accounts with Aquaman, is starting at, like, Phase 1 of MCU with, like, the tone that they're shooting for. And they've still got a lot of the Justice, Justice League characters kind of in production. They've got Wonder Woman 84 coming next year, which seems delightful, but probably is going to be another offshoot of what these last five years of dark, gloomy Zack Snyder stuff was. And then there's the Batman movie, which may or may never happen, with at least with Ben Affleck, uh, who's uh, currently in rehab.
1: So you're, what you're pitching is along the lines of Bill Simmons' famous sports czar role, but for comic book movies.
0: Basically what I'm saying is I, this will never happen, but would it be better if we took comic book movies and basically made them like uh, folk tales, and that they were outside of like Warner Brothers or Disney being able to decide what was the vision of these characters or they had to fit together in these pieces and they t- turned over maybe more... I would allow it, say, like for a, produ- a producer. So Kevin Feige goes independent and runs MCU, but can sell those movies to a corporation that maybe is not going to say, hey, you know, it needs to be a little lighter here. You know, don't shoot it so, so weird or whatever. Marvel movies are a bad example because they're relatively stable. But I was thinking about this Joker movie, and I was thinking about, like, the weird casting, Alec Baldwin being in the movie, out of the movie. Todd Phillips is trying to make this 80s crime movie that's supposed
1: to have nods to, like, King of Comedy I don't know. Do you see what I'm saying here? I do. I, I don't think it's not necessarily nationalizing it. I think actually DC's big picture idea is the right one, which is that not every superhero movie has to be part of this constellation of interconnected stars. Sometimes you can have a standalone movie and it can be good. Yeah. The problem is people who are making DC movies don't know what they're doing. And there's been a lot of... I don't know, a a, a lot of shuffling going on at the top of that company Mm -hmm. over time. The the people who have been in charge of DC products have shifted in and out. And so you don't have a cohesive vision. Now, Kevin Feige has a cohesive vision, not just in terms of how, say, Captain America 2 will influence Avengers 4, but also in the tone, the style, the execution. So it's both homogenous, but it makes sense. Yeah. Now we have Aquaman and Suicide Squad and One Woman 84, and Todd Phillips' Joker movie. Which doesn't have
0: anything to do with these other Batman movies that they've already got going. Yes, and
1: now we we know Matt Reeves is working on a detective-style Batman Uh movie. We know that Jared Leto also is committed to a Joker movie of his own. We know that Margot Robbie is going to appear in Birds of Prey, which is a standalone Harley Quinn movie. So it's confusing for the audiences because we've come to learn over the last 15 years that these stories have to fit together. If you want to bust that up, I'm all for it. You just have to make good movies. Yeah. And I haven't been able to do that yet. Yeah. Now, Todd Phillips has made some good movies, so maybe this could be good?
0: I just think it's probably what it is, is that there's, like, this promise that these things could be good. You know, there's this promise that Danny Boyle's going to direct Bond, and there's this promise that, um, you know, Lord and Miller have this irreverent take on Han Solo. And it's not that I necessarily think those are the right takes, but— there seems to be this huge component of of teasing movie fans with this information and with these possibilities before they eventually make something that, I'd say, 48% of the time is kind of a garbled c- concoction of notes, star the needs of the star, and the ultimate kind of, like, end result of a weird equation that winds up being uh, Spectre, you know, or winds up being what Han Solo was.
1: I think one of the problems that we face is... A, a term coined by our friend Sam Donsky, director bullshit. Mm-hmm. And director bullshit has infiltrated superhero movies more than any other category. And so, the minute we heard about this Todd Phillips Joker movie, it was like, this is like the king of comedy. <laughs> That's like, what the fuck does the Joker have to do with the king of comedy? Now, obviously, you can yeah. draw conclusions, but a better platform, a better sort of way of thinking about this, I think is what Taika Waititi did with Ragnarok. Yeah. Which is, Thor is a character that isn't really that interesting that people haven't had a serious relationship with in the movies, but he is an interesting palette to build on. Yeah, And he what he did is he brought not somebody else's style or like a movie that was made in 1973. This isn't like, what if Thor was like Bullet or what if Thor was like the French Connection? It's like, what if Thor was a Taika Waititi movie? Yeah, what if Bob Raffleson did Thor? Yeah, we don't need to, we don't need to say stuff like that. It's okay for Taika who has this irreverent, fun, loose, chatty, kind of goofball Candy-colored aesthetic, yeah, and you inserted that into the Marvel universe. That is a much better way to think about making these movies. So if Todd Phillips is like, I'm gonna make the Joker movie, and it's gonna be kind of like Borat and The Hangover, you'd be like, okay, so he's making a Todd Phillips movie, as opposed to trying to ape something that he'll never be able to achieve. And we went through this with like Winter Soldier being the parallax, yeah, view. exactly. And that wasn't that was just the, not the case. are good at
0: this. I guess the reason why I was thinking about any of this was because of this Ethan Hawke interview, which has become. One of the most strangely viral gift-giving interviews. Now, our buddy Zach Barron obviously did a piece on him in GQ, which was a fantastic interview. This wasn't out of that interview. No, this was out of, No. Uh, there was
1: also a New York Times Magazine yeah. interview with Ethan Hawke. He's obviously been on a podcast run of late. But this was an interview with the film stage. Right. A long conversation about movies. And this was right at the end of that conversation. And he said something very straightforward, which is, I keep being told that superhero movies are good, especially movies like Logan. I saw Logan— it's fine, yeah, but it's not Ingmar Bergman, and it's not Robert Bresson, and it's not—it's not truly great cinema. And the nerds got mad, and also cineast got mad, and it seemed to be this conflagration of feelings.
0: Yeah, well, I think that. It does actually bring up a lot of really interesting ideas, because I think when you and I were maybe in our early 20s, we were kind of more in the mindset—I mean, we obviously love mainstream movies, but there was a little bit more of a separation of church and state between art house and blockbuster, and I think that that started to break down, especially as, like, in the early—late 90s and early aughts, you started to see these action movies that were starring, like, John Malkovich and and Steve Buscemi, but— I, I think I understand what he's saying. He's a guy who grew up probably loving Godard and, and Bresson movies and he's in these Richard Linklater movies and he thinks he's out there making his version of late 70s American cinema. And then it turns out he needs to be in in The Purge to, to put his kids through college, as he told Zach, you know what I mean? And I think that that's fascinating. What was weird was that I didn't expect there to be... Um, I, I didn't think anybody would be like you're offending me by somehow negating Logan's artistic value. We're we're a year and a half away from when Logan came out. I think we, we're all comfortable with where we rate Logan.
1: Yeah, I, I like the way that you talked about this when we talked about it a couple of days ago when the story was first breaking, which is like, it's completely fine to have both. Yeah. It's completely fine to say, I subscribe to Filmstruck and I'm making my way through Ozu Films and that's my happy place. And it's also okay to say, in addition to that, I'm a big fan of the movie Logan, yeah. which I thought was cool. It doesn't... It's an obsession with, and we are absolutely a part of this at The Ringer, canonization, where things sit in the firmament, what matters and doesn't matter. And there's a media economy thing going on where every time somebody says something that is sweeping, that runs against the grain or defies an expectation of a certain level of fandom, somebody has to come in and fight back for their fandom. And fandom has so infiltrated the way that we watch movies that – to defy Ethan Hawk is to defend Wolverine, and like I don't, I don't know that like Wolverine needs defending in the same way that I don't think Ethan Hawk needs defending. It's like go see First Reformed and go see Logan; they're both good. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, maybe it's that I, I think that
0: it, it might be that I'm I'm more su- surprised that. I think what Ethan Hawke is actually ultimately reacting against is a deep-seated fear that I think a lot of people have is that the more that we basically normalize like superhero popular culture, the more that the things that he cares about, like the kind of human dramas, are just going to be marginalized more and more. And I don't think that that's the
1: case. I think that those movies just need to be better because I watch a lot of them still. Yeah, they still make a lot. They make less, and we talk about this anxiety over and over again, but it's not that much different from... There being this wild rash of Westerns in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Now, out of that Mm -hmm. time, you get incredible John Ford films. You get this Bud Boddicker stuff. Like, you get tons of great movies, but you also get a lot of shit. You get a lot of bad stuff. It's the same thing in the horror genre. In the the 50s, you get the 30s, 40s, and 50s, you get the Universal films and Val Lewton films, but you also get really bad, schlocky, William Castle-style exploitation stuff. Every genre and every frame and every generation has good stuff and bad stuff and mostly everything's kind of in the middle. Mm-hmm. And Logan is like on the higher end of the middle. And I don't think that by saying Logan is a meaningful movie or even giving it an Academy Award nomination necessarily denigrates the future of cinema. That's that's the anxiety that people are hitting on. It's just interesting that we live in a world now where Ethan Hawke can give an interview to a small outlet. That interview can go quasi-viral and then nine think pieces come out of it the next day. it's like, when did
0: Ethan Hawke become Kevin
1: Durant? Exactly. Uh,
0: I think one of the reasons why you and I are probably interested in this also is we lived through this with Mm optimism. We lived through this with being music critics at a time when we basically felt the ground move under our feet from growing up and being like, Beck is a real artist because Beck writes and produces his songs to, no, Beck is the same as Backstreet Boys. Like, they both have musical value. It's It's, a
1: perfect comparison. Yeah. Yeah. um, And I was more of a Poptimist than you were Yes, but I also never felt like you and I were in opposition when we would talk about music, and that's kind of what I'm getting at. It's like it's okay for I was always and you you were too. You were like into Katy Perry for sure. I thought yeah. Katy Perry was a good artist. That didn't change the fact that we were also really in a pavement. Yeah, you can have both. Yeah, absolutely. I just I think it
0: depends on where how you grew up. Where you were like, I mean, I'm still some a child of the '90s that was like being having your music in a commercial is actually morally indefensible.
1: So that actually is over. Yes, that that version yes. of things, that concept of selling out is gone.
0: Absolutely, uh, you you briefly talked about the high end of the middle there a second ago. Let's talk about Jason Reitman. Yeah, let's go. Let's because he is one of the few purveyors of.
1: Um, he makes the movies we're talking about. Exactly, he makes and, m- he makes Hollywood dramas.
0: And we talked about Tully on the big picture for the summer movie awards, and Jason Reitman. Always love it when this happens. Has a second movie coming out this year. It's the Front Runner, and its trailer just came out on Thursday. And it kind of caps a week where we've gotten our first reactions to a couple of pretty obvious Oscar contenders in First Man and uh, Alfonso Cuaron's Roma, which were both playing in Venice. That's right. Both premiered in Venice. And then Front Runner, which looks like uh, Spotlight meets... Take your pick: uh, political, all the president's men, yeah, all the president's men, movie stars. It has that kind of late '90s Sorkin-y tone of really well done dialogue by great actors: J.K. Simmons, Vera Farmiga, Hugh Jackman plays Gary Hart, um, a bunch of people that you'll just recognize from HBO shows and everything else. I kind of, I kind of wonder whether or not this movie is being catapulted into a time that it can't control. Uh, yes, I think it wants to say some things about our current political climate, but I almost wonder whether our current cl- political climate is so perverted that Gary Hart seems like it happened 300 years ago.
1: So a little backstory on this movie, it's essentially based on a lot of the reporting and writing that Matt by the New York times mm-hmm. magazine and Yahoo's political writer did. And Matt profiled Hart, I think maybe six years ago, five years ago for the magazine and it was sort of like, where is Gary Hart now? And he used the Gary Hart story, which is about a politician who was thought to be the front runner for the presidential nomination for, uh, for the Democrats in 1988. And he had an extramarital affair. And the extramarital affair became the thing that sort of undid his candidacy. Mm-hmm. And I'm not, I hope I'm not spoiling the movie for anybody who's looking forward to it. It's pr- pretty explicit in the trailer. It, yeah. It's very recent history. And... The story that Matt wrote essentially uses him as patient zero for everything that would happen with Clinton, everything that would happen with the sort of seediness, the sewer quality that started to infect political reporting, that all the things that in the days of, I don't know, John F. Kennedy were thought to be unsaid among the political class of reporters – started to come to the surface. Mm -hmm. So, Gary Hart is the first time somebody's like, this guy's sleeping around and America needs to know. And if one paper reports on it, then the rest of the world has to report on it. It's a very interesting concept. It's very subtle, though. And in a time of loud, angry, emotional, political discourse, a movie that is trying to say, like, hey, this is the first time something happened and a guy slept with another woman, people are not really going to be clutching their pearls about that. Yeah, and so I wonder if the emotional stakes will actually feel quite a bit lower. And will it just not feel like, for lack of a better phrase, the movie we need right now? Like well, that actually might hold it back. This, I, we're, all, we're talking about
0: the same thing. It's kind of interesting. We are talking about the same thing again. I think that this year I've noticed more and more this erosion, not out of, and I don't feel nostalgic or romantic or I'm not missing it, but an erosion of that the center, right? So an erosion of just a movie that's good with good actors that makes you feel good, but also makes you think. And in the same way, I think that we're going to start going to, we see extremes happening in our political sphere. You know, you wonder whether or not you're going to start seeing more extreme political art in a certain way. Or at least that's what people gravitate towards. That people are going to be like, I like something that's all the way pop or all the way, you know, complex. Now, this Oscar season, you get the impression that we're going to see a couple of movies that are like the old school Hollywood does it better than anybody else. First man, star is born, and front runner kind of movies. But I wonder whether or not those films will do well commercially.
1: I I don't know. It's really hard to say. It's funny. I've been thinking about and watching the movies of Hal Ashby lately. Mm -hmm. There's a documentary about Hal Ashby coming out next week. And the thing that you've learned— It's called Hal. Okay. I would highly recommend it if anybody's not familiar with Hal Ashby. He made Harold and Maude, Coming Home, The Last Detail, Being There, and just an astonishing run of movies in the 70s. And Hal Ashby's movies, and it didn't totally occur to me until I saw this movie and started re-watching his work, is infused with heavy sociopolitical themes. But the movies are very about very small, individuated people who are not political people. Mm-hmm. There are people who are in the Navy. There are people, there's a young man and an older woman who fall in love. There's... Uh, a gardener who essentially becomes a celebrity. But the ideas in those movies are completely influenced by the times. And Shampoo is one of his most famous movies. There are several, almost dozens of shots of Richard Nixon and Watergate in the background of every scene in Shampoo. But the movie is not about Watergate. And so what I'm kind of waiting for is not a movie like The Front Runner, which is going to say put its finger on its nose and say, this is a movie for our times, but movies that are influenced by what's happening in the world without being overt. I I don't know if we live in a society anymore where that kind of artistic subtlety works. Absolutely.
0: And I also, I mean, when I was seeing the first few reactions to First Man, the ones that made me really want to see it are the ones that are basically like, this is to space what Saving Private Ryan was to war. I mean, we're never going to think about this, the same way again afterwards. the 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 part that made me my eyebrow cock was when they there was like a true testament to the courage of men who pushed further than we ever could have dreamed. I just think that there's going to be like a kind of tacit rejection of of that kind of myth making. I completely agree, and I'll, I'll be curious to see how it's received. And I, I I almost feel bad for Chazelle because I feel like his movies don't get judged on their own terms, really. Uh, since Whiplash. I think La La Land obviously got put into a binary with Moonlight and also was just kind of like on the track for way too long and just uh, everybody got their shot at it. And I can't wait to see First Man, but I have a feeling like there's going to be some some stuff about
1: that. I think he's a sincere and emotional filmmaker, but his greatest identifier, and I've said this since I saw Whiplash, is he's a master technician. Mm-hmm. He's an incredible creator of movies, of like physical and emotional tension in movies. And sometimes maybe the dialogue isn't what you want it to be or the big, even the bigger idea of the movie isn't exactly what you want it to be. But the feeling that he gives you when you're watching the movie is unlike almost anybody that is working. So on those terms, I am i haven't seen First Man. I'm ex- really excited to see yeah, it. Yeah,
0: he's following the Nolan track of, I'm going to keep getting bigger and bigger with my ideas. And that's to be appreciated, I think, uh, especially since he'll probably be directing
1: Wonder Woman 92 next. Most definitely. I wonder, though, how— I mean, we're going to wait to see as Oscar season approaches. I'm sure we'll talk about this again. Whether it's a political Oscars at all, I mean, it'll it, the movies that are going to be released right into the midterms. There's going to be a lot of people making a lot of effort to say this means this and this mm-hmm. doesn't mean this. A Star Is Born doesn't really feel like a, a terribly political movie to me. Roma, I think, is going to be a movie about home and and an experience. It's not going to be a, a movie about, you know, will Florida go blue?
0: Sure. Sure. I guess we'll have to see. I'll definitely keep having this conversation. All right. Thank you, Deshaun for so much for joining me. Next up is my conversation with David Shoemaker about Ozark. Today's episode of the Watch is brought to you by the new Showtime original series Kidding, starring Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey and directed by Michelle Gondry. Carrie plays Jeff Pickles, a children's television icon and a force for good in an often cruel world. As his family life starts to unravel, Jeff's sanity is put to the ultimate test. Will he be able to keep it together? Catch the series premiere of Kidding Sunday, September 9th at 10 p.m., following the season premiere of Shameless, only on Showtime. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Greats. Greats is Brooklyn's first sneaker company crafting quality, purpose built footwear was founded on the idea of building a better sneaker for less. They offer classically inspired styles for both men and women in full and half sizes, Greats sells direct to consumer so you get high quality product at a value price. And their best sellers include the all leather Royale lace up and the Wooster slip on. Greats are built using luxury, high quality materials and premium construction. Check out Greats online at greats.com or visit them in person in New York, Venice Beach, and select Nordstrom stores across America. Greats offers free shipping on orders of $75 and a simple exchange process if you need a different size. Need help? Greats support team is available seven days a week. Greats has been featured in GQ, Vogue, Esquire, and their shoes have hundreds of five-star reviews from shoppers. Forbes even described Greats as the next great footwear company. I have a pair of Greats, the Royale Perforated. They're great for actually, you know, a black jeans and going out to dinner at night or just hanging out around the house, going to run errands. They're just a quick day-to-night transition. I don't really have a lot of day-to-night pieces, but my Great sneakers are, and they're excellent if you're looking for something to walk around the city in or something to snaz it up a little bit. So it's just like, what, what else do you need from a sneaker? Get your pair today at greats.com and save 15% on your first purchase with our code WATCH. That's greats.com and code WATCH to save 15%. All right, joining me to talk about a show that's very near and dear to my heart, Ozark on Netflix, which starts its second season uh, Thursday at midnight if you're a night owl or Friday, uh, which, which when most people will probably click it on, is David Shoemaker, uh, co-host of the Press Box Mask Man Show, and Shoemaker was nice enough to join me because he, like I, we just love washing our money in this big, this big Ozark Lake. Shoemaker, what's up? <laughs> oh man, I am so excited for this show. I can't even tell you. This
2: was like, you know, there's sometimes when you're working for the Ringer and you feel like. I mean you might not be in the same boat but I feel like I like I get out on shows because everybody around me is so in on them so quickly <laughs> and this was whatever the opposite of that was I was just like just sitting here screaming about Ozark Ozark on Work Slack every couple of days you were doing the same thing Jason Gallagher I think was doing the same thing but there wasn't a whole uh, this this just feels like a show everybody
0: should love and I'm so excited that it's back Yeah the money team if I remember correctly of the the original Early adopters of Ozark at the Ringer were you, me, Gallagher, O'Hanlon's mom, and Sean. Yu. and Kaya now is in. Like <laughs> we've, we've we've got our converts. It turns out that just being like wild eyed on the streets and and pressing this pamphlet into people's hands, it, it does work eventually. I wanted to just talk a little bit about why we like this show because I think it's one of those strange TV shows that it just really depends on where you're standing in front of the painting. And you can see you can see a lot of different things. And I think a lot of people will kind of look at me and be like, why do you like this so much? And I think a really easy st- way to start the conversation is it, it just feels like a domestic version of 24 in some ways. It has that mm-hmm. level of tension. It produces those levels of anxiety in that almost getting high way where you're like, I kind of need this. I need to have my my heartbeat raised over the course of an hour watching these people try to dig their way out of hell uh and i think that that is part of the appeal but there's a lot of other stuff going on why do you love it so much i mean <clears throat> it's funny you're talking
2: about all the people who initially liked it and now the people who, who like it again i think there's i mean there's something going on with the way that we watch tv now especially prestige tv broadly defined that like you just kind of need one little reason to watch something, and then, then, then you know, if enough other people are watching it, and if it's well enough made, which it almost always is, then you're just in. And there's a lot of little reasons why people would like this show, right? I mean, the cast is incredible. I mean, you could come in as a Bateman fan, or a Laura Lenny fan, or, you know... I guess like a Julia Garner fan, if you're deep into what all the different things she's done over the past five years, and really just love the show, for, you know whatever. But I, I, I love the vibe, I love the the ambiance, I love the setting. I'm a diehard Daniel Woodrell fan, the novelist who wrote Winter's of course, home, but yeah. his, you know, the more Bio trilogy, more in, yeah, yeah, more integrally the Bayou trilogy. The Bayou trilogy, by the way, is my for anyone looking, anyone who wants to walk up to me in an imaginary land and ask me for a book recommendation, I always say the Bayou trilogy because no one's ever not liked it. All right, yeah, that's and, like, uh, call
0: that the triple down
2: book club. It's it's the yeah. shoemaker version. <laughs> uh, yeah, and and the, I know there's been a lot of talk, especially recently, about how Netflix likes these like short series are made. I feel like all the episodes are made really well. Um I feel like. The crime element is just, it's so hammy, but it's spot on. The how to wa- how to launder your money thing is just a nice little, you know, it's like a mystery box. Not a mystery box, but it's like, a, it's like a, it's a riddle, you know? You're just like, it's interesting to see all the ways that he figures out to do his, get through all this. Every character is interesting and good. I don't know. I just think it's like, it's not great television, but it's like it is B-plus television across the board in a way that's
0: hard to fathom. Yeah, I think that there's a couple of different layers to this show, too, right? I think that there is the initial, like, noir... It's it's tongue-in-cheek noir, so it's noir told by characters who are almost self-aware that they're inside of a noir story, and that was where Bateman's performance kind of comes into play, because he's such a wise-cracking smartass, and I don't think he could possibly resist playing that part the part that way, but because he seems to be almost aware of the story his character is in while he's Mm -hmm. performing it, there is that makes up for the fact that there isn't necessarily an audience avatar because typically what the audience avatar would be is someone who is new to this circumstances and is guiding us through this underworld. And it's something that I've been kind of obsessed with in the last few months because I, I think I started thinking about it in regards to... Um, Sicario, the the second Sicario film, because they removed the Emily Blunt character that was supposed to be our guide through this world. And I think that um, Ozark is supposed to be, the family is supposed to be the audience avatar. Uh, But they've kind of changed that because what they've taken is, this show shows how survival and ambition can often look like the same thing. And that's the coolest thing about what's happening with this family is that Everything that they tell their kids, and everything that they kind of superficially tell themselves, is that they're doing this just to keep their head about above the water, that they're doing this to just to survive, that if they were to do the alternative, that the the cartels would kill them or the the snells would kill them. But in truth, I think that this is a guy who kind of found himself at the point in his life. That Walter White eventually finds himself where he was yes. like, I did it for me. And I think that the fact that this show starts with Marty Bird watching a videotape of his wife cheating on him mm-hmm. is probably crucial to his psychology, you know?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that rewatching the show, I think it was more apparent to me than on the first watch how you know, there's a lot of very Netflix-y elements of the show, but one of them is the cast. How, like, every single person who appears on screen has previously been in something else and is easily Googleable. and you kind of bring different, you know... The cast is all, hey, I know that guy, or oh, hey, yeah. I know Peter that Oh, yeah,
0: Peter Mullen, J- you know, like, uh, Julia Garner, obviously, Jordana Spiro, Harris Eulin. yeah. And Bateman in particular, you know, it's intriguing that, he, that they signed him up for this show
2: right on the heels of Arrested Development. So all that is to say that, like... There is a computer brain in the Netflix office that's like people like Jason Bateman. We'll put him in the Ozarks. We'll see how it goes. Um, and there are some moments. I think my least favorite moments of the show are when he's being overly comical. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because it just feels a lot like Arrested Development. But but there. But the flip side of that is he has an incredible range that he shows in the show that that's sort of breathtaking in its own right. But the even just putting Jason Bateman as we think of him in this situation um, in the darker moments is really just something to watch. And there's a little bit of like long goodbye in it. There's like just ha- having him having him play. Into that Walter Whitey character, would like the like you said, I think is is really interesting, and I think that the real I think there's a real lesson that they learned going back to what you were saying from Breaking Bad, where like the audience stand-ins or just the heroes that that they thought they were creating in Breaking Bad turned out to not be the ones that the audience liked, right? right? I mean, they like they thought the Skyler like,
0: would be the audience avatar,
2: right? And the and the, the audience never reacts the way you do, and in this case, it's a little bit of like like well in some ways the act i mean the acting it should be said as somebody who's who's from the south who loves southern film southern southern fiction all the time i mean This is a fantasy land. This is like (laughs) this is this is Southern, this is like Southern Gothic in the most sort of insulting way, but it's wonderful at the same time. It's a little bit, it has a little bit of that. What's what was the Showtime show that you and Andy always saw? Oh, Banshee, which was like really good, but was just not set in a real place at all. You know, I mean, there's like no continuity between dialect and 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 even like, you know, background. No, that was more of a
0: comic book, yeah.
2: Yeah, and and there's some of that in this too. I mean, this is really just like everybody like like can you do a southern accent? Okay, don't even try in front of me, just go do it on screen. You yeah. know, I mean, and they and they and there's and that's really great. But but in some ways that makes watching Peter Mullen just go out there and just chew scenery so much more amazing, right? Yeah. I mean, and it makes and the same thing for Julia Garner, who's just, you know, I think probably done 10 Southern accents in her career, even though she's not Southern. It's just, there's just like, it's all just sort of a stage show. You know, I mean, it's, but that's, but it's just, it's just really cool. All of that is to say that like there are things to fall in love with in every moment of the show. I don't think you need an audience avatar because I think you're right. I mean, Jason Bateman tries really, really hard to be unlikable, you know, throughout the, throughout the, for a season. And, uh, you know, he, He more
0: or less succeeds, but it's hard not to love that guy. Yeah, you know, I I think I like to think of this show as basically the Coke Zero of of Prestige TV. It's got Mm -hmm. a lot of the hallmarks that we would expect. It's got a certain, um, you know, dark texture to the cinematography. I think it's shot really well. I think all the performances are uniformly very good. But what it strips out is our traditional understanding of what you need to develop and build up and Andy and I have often talked about the pilot episode the first episode and how it essentially goes from season one to season three of Breaking Bad in 60 minutes and um, I think that that's sort of the genius of the show is if you keep pushing the pedal down you won't run into bloodline problems which is essentially a really interesting setting really good performance and a cool idea for a show that then slams the brakes to do all atmosphere and all like smoking and staring out of a window. Essentially all the middle parts of Sharp Objects. And I think that that's what this show kind of gets right is that people sort of want the propulsive nature of it and they don't, there is anxiety in this show but there is also the question of whether or not the main character in the show might be a psychopath. He might be someone who actually is continuously putting his family's life on the line because of the thrill he gets from becoming a power player in this shady underworld. Yeah, for sure. Um I'm curious to know what your expectations or nervousness or worries are about about it.
2: Um it's always it's so hard to tell. It's so I mean with every Netflix show that doesn't involve a superhero and even the ones that do, it's it's hard it's you know, it's hard to tell what lessons they would have learned if they stayed true to the course you know and just let it be about you know this if it's the same feel the same writing and obviously most of the same cast i think that it could really work i think my fear would be that it does that it actually goes down the breaking bad path and i love breaking bad top to bottom but if but when you like zoom out or, or rewatch it it's like sort of the same problem over and over again with just like the villain getting bigger and bi- like the the, the the boss getting bigger and yeah. badder every time i don't need to see a bigger ozark mob boss roll onto the scene you know like i I don't need i don't need to see a a, like a like a worse a worse you know a bigger villain partly because a lot of the characters that they've developed are so great um and partly because you know the show itself is the villain sort of you know and i think that i think jason bateman obviously takes on some of that role um you know it, it it doesn't need to continue to be a battle, it can just sort of be a puzzle. Like that's that's that would be my hope, I guess. But I mean, I mean, I I would say that I mean, from the first, from the moment I turned on the show, I love Jason Bateman. I love Laura Linney. I thought that's kind of a weird couple. You know, it took me yeah. like half an episode to get into it, but they might have, in a weird way, the most functional relationship in television, where like <laughs> she's like screaming. She's like literally been out, spent the day screaming at a guy in the grocery store about ice cream or whatever. And he walks in and she's just like, don't effing talk to me right now. And right. he's just like, uh, our son is having actually a problem that I think that, that we need to discuss. And then it's just like quick cut to them having a very reasonable conversation about it. You know, like, I don't know. There was like for everything that's going on all the way up until the very last scene of the show. I mean, of season one, I just love watching them interact. It's just like. It's just fantastic stuff.
0: Yeah, they're definitely like a very post-couples therapy couple. They have all the vocabulary of how they're supposed to fix this relationship, yet they mm-hmm. are fundamentally engaged in something that is immoral. So it's yes. it's hard because there's just this thing in the center. And the thing that I liked, I watched the first episode of the second season, and it's essentially an extension of the first season. It starts moments after the the first season ends. Um, one thing that I think is going to be very exciting about this season is that, in the same way I was mentioning that uh, survival and ambition are kind of the same thing, it feels like this season will be... Uh, Wendy will get as much involved in the, uh, the growing of the family business in the w- in a way that suits her particularly and her political background and how she kind of really thrived as a political operator when they were living back in Chicago. Um and, and it's 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 fascinating to watch that be a direction the show is going. Also it's just they've essentially put Marty in the middle of a triangle of like criminal elements from uh the Snell's to the Langmores to the cartel. And Mm -hmm. there are representatives from all those places. They all want what he has. They all want him to keep doing what he's doing. And then Marty has his own ambition. So it's, they've definitely figured out a way to extend this a second season. I'm not, I'm not like particularly worried about whether or not it gets a third season. I think it's a pretty popular show. It's just really about like how long can you sustain this? The one thing I think is cool is that I think in the second season they will pull back a little bit and show... Some of the uh, surrounding geography of just—it's not just going to be the resort function of the of like the lake. It's going to be Kansas City and people going to different cities and stuff like that. So that's it's a pretty cool element.
2: Yeah, I mean, I love like I love the setting, but I don't think the show is necessarily constrained by the setting. And that's just like you know zooming out or even you know just pulling up stakes and leaving all together at some point in the future. So I'm it's I'm I'm very excited. I mean, I think that. I'm glad that we have a chance to talk about this. I'm glad that I, in particular, have a chance to talk about this. I think it's, I mean, like when I pushed play on that show for the first time, I was immediately wrapped and I've tried to convert people, you know, over the course of the last year. But, um, you know, it's just, it's just fun and good. Yeah. And I, and I, and I, and I really hope that people, like, I think that even the people who are most vocally, who are most vocally support it, like you and me, find our find ourselves tripping over the the qualifications. Yeah, there's all these caveats, yeah. Yeah, if you don't like all... If if you're not a fan of this show, then maybe not. Or, like, if you don't like Jason Bateman's sense of humor, or, like, I don't know who that person is, but, like, maybe not. Or, like, if you don't... Like, whatever. I I just think that... I, I just think that... Everybody likes the show. Everybody should watch the show. It's really, really good. And it's like, it's forget the forget the, the caveats. It's it's just awesome.
0: Yeah, I think that really good shows, even if they're not entirely successful creatively, but good shows, which I think is different, create their own sort of rules and realities. We've said this before on the pod where we're talking about like shows teach you how to watch them, but that's become like a a, a recurring trope in criticism these days. It's just like once you find a show that you like, you realize. I now know how to watch Amy Adams drive around drunk. You know, I now know how to watch <laughs> Wyatt Russell lying on a bench eating a donut. Like, you kind of have to fall into the rhythms of a show. And some shows never find that rhythm, and some shows give you the rhythm, but then you're like, I don't really care about the song in the first place. And <laughs> I, I understand there's elements to that, but one thing I would say is that w- the uh, one thing plaguing television is tempo and pace and the re- over-reliance on... Uh, signifiers of atmosphere and seriousness rather than uh, efficiency of storytelling, and that is not something that uh, Ozark suffers from. Ozark definitely is a propulsive, uh, almost, you know, nail-biting pace, even though it's essentially about accounting. Yes. Yeah.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, the, 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 the framing of every episode is really well done. And you're right. The pace of the show. I mean, I mentioned some of this stuff earlier, but like, I don't know if it's the acting performances, or just the sheer writing. They can make things like, I mean, they, the way that everything ties together so neatly. No one cares about the ice cream, but you care about you care about Laura Linney, and then you care about the 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 dead animals, and then when you find out why they're there, it's just like I mean, the whole th- like everything is just so so beautifully knotted together, and it's like. It is, it is like, I mean, I mentioned Daniel Woodrow, who was writing, you know, really high level crime fiction, um, when he was writing mostly about the Ozarks. And, but it really is just like a really beautifully written crime novel in a lot of ways because it, it, it brings you into a world you didn't know about. And I don't just mean the Ozarks. I mean, like, the accounting world too. And it just, like, kind of gives you that moment of satisfaction on
0: every page where you're just like, Oh, that was a cool t- trick they just did. It's interesting too, also how it shows. Uh, this is these people are engaged in something for the express purpose of of generating money. Like there's nothing, there's no offshoot of what they're doing that is charitable or philanthropic or for the betterment of society. But at the same time, as the the more money they generate, the more money almost becomes this onerous thing that they have to carry around with them and get rid of and light on fire and shove in walls and put into you know lockers. It's 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 a really interesting look at how empty the entire enterprise is i think um we'll definitely have to have shoemaker on to talk about the second season in about a week or so um thank you so much for joining me today dave thanks for having me man Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Everyone knows about the risks of driving drunk. People could get hurt or killed. You could get arrested, incur huge legal expenses, or even lose your job. If you think drunk driving is no big deal, you couldn't be more wrong. Drive sober or get pulled over. Learn more at NHTSA.gov. Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by Showtime's wondrous new series, Kidding starring Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey as Jeff Pickles, a kind man in a cruel world, trying to keep it together. Don't miss Kidding. Sundays at 10 p.m. beginning September 9th, only on Showtime.